I've been at Coastal since 2011. So at one point in time, I thought that if I look back at my life, um, that I might have one regret, and that was of not having any children of my own. I never thought that um, I would hear anybody call me dad. There were times that I prayed to God that if it was his will that I had children, that he would open up the door. And um, I just never thought that he would open up such a big door. So about four years ago, uh, I felt the Lord uh, tugging at my heart to go out on the mission field. And that was the first time that I went to Honduras and Bolivia. As soon as we arrived in Honduras, we were just surrounded by children. And I just realized how big of a, a love for children the Lord uh, had really placed on my heart. Honduras was the first place that I sponsored children. Uh, and one in particular uh, met on the last day that we were in Honduras. Um, I just knew that there was an immediate connection. He has uh, a mother and father that he lives with and, and brother and sister, but um, he's missing a spiritual mentor in the home. We have really grown uh, close and uh, we talk every day. He considers me his dad, I consider him my son. As his mentor, I mean, we, we talk every day. It's not always um, a spiritual conversation. It's just, you know, how was your day? You know, how did you do at school? Um, how was work today? Um, but a lot of times we, uh, you know, I, I make sure that the Lord is mentioned each day, that he walks in the footsteps of the Lord, that anything that he does and, and says that day is gonna bring glory to the Lord. Being in, in God's word each and every day, um, being involved uh, in coastal and small group, uh, corporate worship, all of that has prepared me to be uh, a spiritual advisor. I, I'm still learning uh, as well. Um, Lex uh, feeds into my life just as much as I feed into his. Well, as I found out in Honduras, you know, even though uh, my son in Honduras has a father, there's an absence in the home of spiritual leadership. And at one point there was um, there wasn't a close relationship to his dad. I've been able to guide him into uh, making sure that he honors his father and his mother. You know, no matter what, pray for your father that uh, he comes to Christ. So just because um, some of these children have parents and, and have fathers, it doesn't mean that they have a spiritual leader. So don't just look for the orphans, but look for the boys that are out there that are um, in need of and are seeking some spiritual Mentorship. Never thought that I would have the blessing of being able to leave a legacy that has an internal has an eternal impact. It's really not that hard. It's not that difficult. And the blessing that you receive um, may outnumber uh, or may outweigh uh, the blessing that you're giving to the to the child. That's a great story. I... <clears throat> Um, you can clap, uh, but Scott's not here. He's actually on his way to Bolivia, okay, to hang out with some of the kids that he sponsors. And it's just a great story of spiritual fatherhood, uh, even that a single man can have. And, and to see Scott Shear um, become a spiritual father has been awesome. It's Father's Day. Way to go, dads. Yes, stand up, dads. We want to applaud for you. We're going to pray over you. Awesome. Man, I am... Don't sit down just yet. I, I, am, um, I am thankful to the Lord that you men chose to worship in corporate worship as a spiritual father. So thank you for being here. And um, 
You know, that video reminds me that, that being a dad can also be spiritual. I know many of you have not only biological sons, but spiritual sons. And um, the Scriptures are clear to us about the importance of fatherhood and spiritual headship. And there's no… Um, it's fascinating to me that we refer to our Creator as heavenly what? Father, right? And then we bear that name, and, and you, if you're like me, you feel the weight of that, and it makes you sing that last song with all the more vigor, because <laughs> all I have is Christ, because we need to lean into Christ, right, uh, to be spiritual fathers. So, let me pray over you, and thank you so much for being here. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for these men, and they are here this morning more than likely because they they take their responsibility as a father seriously, and they wanted to model and lead their homes, um, showing that corporate worship is important, that they humbly bow a knee to the Lordship of Christ. And I pray, God, that you'll take the influence of these men and uh, spread it so that Christ might be lifted up through their life. I pray for the ones that have young children under the roof of their home right now, God, and it's exhausting. It's physically exhausting to provide each day at work and then come home and invest in the children, and I pray that you would renew their strength, both physically and spiritually, God. I pray for the one in this room whose children have left the house, God, and I pray that you will continue to help them to be spiritual fathers, Lord, to find young men like Scott has found that they can invest in in a spiritual sense, Father. I pray for the one that's standing, that they're standing, but they know there's a relational distance between them and their children, God. I pray by the grace of God and the, and the reconciliation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they would be reconciled to their children, God, and be able to have a and influence. I pray for the one who has lost a child, a dad who even today is mixed with grief, that you um, would undergird them with strength. You're a God who grieves with those who grieve, and so you would be near to them and be a comfort. For all of these men, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us and that you would help us to lead in our circles of influence with holiness and righteousness in a way that honors and worships our Savior Jesus Christ. And it's in His most precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Give these men a round of applause. Thank you, men. I am just thrilled you're here today. And in honor of you, we uh, have provided donuts for you. All right. They're there was a suggestion this morning, this week, that maybe we should provide something healthier. I said, no way, okay? Um, dads need donuts, all right? So, grab a donut on the way out, and then go exercise this afternoon, all right? Um, get your Bible out, Colossians 1. We're finishing up this chapter, and um, uh, we're kind of picking our way slowly through this letter, and over the course of the summer, because I wanted you to meditate on it and really familiar, familiarize yourself with a, 
with one of the letters of the New Testament, and I really wanted to take a small chunks of Scripture over the summer, and, and uh, we're doing this series called Above All Christ as we look at Colossians. I, I remember um, when I was in college, my friends and I worked at a summer camp, so we were up there in the wintertime prepping the camp for the students to come painting and doing stuff like that, and and so this camp was in upstate New York, and it was in the winter, and it was on a lake, and the lake, of course, was frozen solid. I mean, up in New York, the upstate New York, these lakes get so thick, you could drive a car on them. And, and so if you have a lake house and you have a, a dock in, on these lakes, what you would do is you would purchase a bubbler that would bubble all winter long, keep the water moving so that, the, so that right around the dock, it it wouldn't freeze up. And so me and my friends thought that it would be a good idea to jump into a frozen lake, okay? And, and since I was the smallest of the group, they suggested I go first so that if anything, anything should happen, they could pull me out, okay? To which I was like, yes, I'll go first, okay? And so at least we were smart enough to put a life jacket on. So I put a life jacket on, and, and there's actually video of this. I thought about playing it this morning, but nah. Anyway, I was like, no, no, I look like an idiot. I'm not going to show you all that, so we'll just verbally describe it. So I jump into this lake and screaming in celebration, and I hit the water, and immediately the air sucks out of my lungs, okay, and I am gasping, and uh, I'm sure there's some medical reasons for this, but like my limbs went immediately flat, like I could hardly move my arms and my legs, and I, as, as quickly as I could, I swam over to the ladder, and and again, I'm sure the blood was rushing to my brain and heart for survival, and I couldn't use my limbs, and I get to the ladder, and I literally couldn't pull myself up. Maybe there's a medical reason. Maybe I was just a wimp. I don't know, okay? And so I couldn't get up, and my friends reached in. They literally had to pull me up out of the water uh, because I just didn't have the strength of my muscles because of the temperature of the water to pull my, myself up. And, and we were in college, and that seemed to go so well, every one of my friends did the same thing, all right? And so it was, it was fantastic when we got to the guy that was 6'8", you know, and it took like a village to pull him out, but, uh, but it was fantastic, and we did that. And but I had to be pulled out. I had to be rescued. And this morning, we're going to park on a biblical word called reconciled. And, and the idea of being reconciled is the idea that, that God reached into our sinful mess and He pulled us out of our sin and our rebellion, and, and really what we should have deserved is the wrath of God, and we, apart from Christ, are enemies with God, is literally what the Scriptures teach. And God, because of His grace and His mercy, love, He pulls us out, and He puts us in a whole other category with Himself called friends. And we become friends with God because God has reconciled us because of the person and, and the work and the blood of Jesus Christ. And no longer are we enemies, but we're friends. And so as we've been unpacking this passage, uh, you know, we looked at Christ being sovereign and head over creation. He's the creator. He's holding it all together. And and, you know, we talked about, man, you're here this morning because Jesus held it together for you to be here, all the world. 
And then we looked at last week how Jesus is the head of the church, and he's reconciled or saved the church. And so this morning, I want to make it a little more personal in that not only is Jesus the sovereign of the earth, not only did he save the church, but he saved you personally. He's your personal savior, if you will. He, he reached into the freezing waters of sin where you should have drowned, and he saved you if you're a Christian this morning. And so Colossians 1, 21, the Apostle Paul writes this, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul's saying you were once this. So Paul here is addressing believers, but he's He's giving us insight into the mind of an unbeliever. He's, he's giving us insight into, so if you hear this, and I'm, I'm assuming that most of you here are believers, but there may be some who aren't, and if you aren't, I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're investigating the claims of Christ, and, uh, but we have, to, we have to look at the Scripture and say, what does the Scripture teach us? It's going on inside of our hearts and minds as unbelievers, and even a believer will go, yes, that was me. And we get, a, we, get, we get insight into the mindset of someone who's not yet a Christian. And Paul says, you are hostile in mind. Apart from the regeneration and the work of the Holy Spirit that awakens our hearts and our minds to the need of the gospel, apart from that, we, we're enemies with God. Our minds are hostile towards the things of God. The, uh, the, the way the unregenerate mind and heart works is that we, 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 it all starts in, the, the Bible uses the word heart, and, it, and we're going to see this in a couple weeks, is uh, the, the, the Bible links closely heart and mind together, okay? And, and so in that man, apart from Christ, we think about sin. Sin is birthed in the heart. Sin is not a behavior the behavior is the overflow of who we really are, right? For those of you who are dads, right? Why, why does the Scripture call us to discipline our children and shepherd our children? Because, you know, they, it's not, we shouldn't just be shepherding their deeds, right? They're, the behavior, if there's sinful behavior in the life of your children, that's just the overflow of the heart, right? And so, yes, we want to shepherd their deeds and, and steer them in right behavior, of course, but that's just behavior modification if we're also not looking at the heart of our children and asking the question, asking them as they get older the question, why, why is that behavior happening? Well, it's happening because it's in their heart, right? And I know we don't think of this, like when you get that newborn and that beautiful baby, right? And then as they get older and they begin, and we hear, we hear parents say this a lot, especially as their kids get older and do evil deeds and sinful deeds. And they're like, well, I know that they have a good what? We, we really need to stop saying that because that's not true. And sometimes I think we want to let our kids off the hook with, well, I know they have a good heart. So next time you're holding an infant, like, man, you unregenerate, you know, like, no, I, we, I get we don't want to, but we do need to think like that. Why should we think like that? Because it presses on us the need to herald or teach the, the gospel even to our own children so that the Holy Spirit, our prayer should be the Holy Spirit reaches into the hearts of our children, plucks out the old heart of stone and sin and gives them a new heart of belief 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so sin begins with thinking, which overflows into action. And then when we do more sin, what happens? Eventually, the more we do sin, the more we begin to applaud sin. And eventually, the applauding of sin goes all the way to where we now begin to call sin righteous. So in other words, if if, if left in our sinful state long enough, the very things that God would call sinful and unrighteous, the unregenerate mind and the unregenerate heart all begins to say, no, we're going to take what God declares as sinful and holy. We're going to call it right and true. And we kind of live in that culture, right? I mean, you guys know that. We live in this post-Christian culture where, you know, as a Christian, we're going to begin to have to take a stand on Man, we just can't call sinful behavior righteous and good anymore. And that's pressuring the Christian world. It's pressuring our little worlds a little bit because we have to look at the Word of God and say, no, God has defined righteousness and holiness. And, and we can't, not only can we not applaud sin, but we can't call sin righteousness, which is what the world's pushing us to do. Well, that's where the unregenerate mind goes, right? And so Psalm 1 kind of paints this picture. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Psalms 1 kind of gives us this downward spiral, right? At first, you're, you're walking with people that are influencing your behavior. You're listening to the thoughts of the world. And eventually, you know, walking's not good enough. And so you stand. You stop and you stand and you listen to unbelievers. Or you know, as an unbeliever, you begin to stand and join in. And then eventually, you sit down in your sin and, and loving it. And that's the mind, Paul says, is what you used to be. And then the behavior, the the doing of evil, is the overflow of sinful hearts. So the behavior is just showing us what's in the heart, right? And Jesus taught us this. He said in Matthew 15, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. When someone says something, it's just what's inside there, right? Jesus said if a man looks at a woman in lust, he's committed adultery in his heart, Lust is just an overflow of what's already in there, Matthew 5. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you call another person a name, if you, if you call them a fool, you know, or supplement your own word, jerk or idiot or some others I can't say from the pulpit, right? The seeds of murder are already in your heart because you're already saying, I don't like that person. And so sinful deeds are just the overflow of the heart. And so... Since God is holy and perfect and just, and we, apart from Christ, are sinners, and again, I've been saying, this this passage has been teaching us this, we're not in a neutral state with God apart from Christ. We're, We're enemies with God, and what we justly deserve is the wrath of God, okay? And so what we need is to be saved. And so if, you, if you're new to church life, or even if you've been around church life, we throw out this word saved a lot, right? A lot of times you're saved from what? You know, I didn't know I needed saved. You need to be saved from the penalty of your sin. Your sin has earned you a just dessert under, not food dessert, okay, deserving dessert. Uh, you know, you, you've earned you something under the, under the character of God. And so we need to be saved. We actually need to be saved from the very character of God's wrath and, ho- and judgment because He's holy. All right? And so your greatest need and my greatest need and your children, Dad, your children's greatest need is to be reconciled to God. 
In fact, I want to encourage you to, to evaluate your parenting dads. Like, make sure that, that the, the, the pinnacle, the, what you're most concerned about in your parenting is that your children know the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they're reconciled, so they're at peace with God. It's not that they get an education, oh, that's good. It's not, not that they have the stuff you didn't have and you want them to have more, you know, and you're, you're kind of killing yourself to make sure they have more. Like, that shouldn't be the focus. The focus of what we're doing is to, dads, is to make sure our kids understand the gospel so they can be reconciled. It's mankind's greatest need. And so Paul says in verse 22 of Colossians 1, Christ, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so now he's saying, now you've been reconciled. You're at Pete. You've been moved by the grace of God. You've been moved from enemies to friends. That's reconciled. So when you hear the word reconciled, enemy, I used to be an enemy. I'm now in the category of friend. How did that happen? It happened by the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's very, very important for you to understand that forgiveness is freely offered to you and me. So when we say, man, God is forgiving, yes, He's forgiving, and forgiveness is a free offer. So if you're here this morning, you're not yet a believer, you're carrying the weight and the the shame of sin, and, and as I'm preaching about this hostility towards God and the love for sin, and you're like, that's me, and it's led me to the pig pen, and you want to be free from this kind of this mess you're living in, then all you need to do is confess, agree with God, confess that you're a sinner, repent of your sin, and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that He's the Son of God, that He died a substitutionary death, where God poured out His wrath and hatred for sin on Jesus, and He rose again, authenticating His claims to being the only way to God. And when that happens, we are, by the grace of God, plucked out of enemies and put into friendship, okay? And so that's the message of the gospel, and that's your hope. But we, and while that offer of forgiveness is free to you, it came at a high cost to God and His Son, Jesus. He sent His Son, the spilling of blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the author of Hebrews says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. If you ever read through the Pentateuch and you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you read all these sacrifices, and they're gross, right? And, and they're weakly, some of them. And, and there's all this bloodshed. Why did God do that? So that people's sins could be forgiven? No, it was a reminder of the truth of Hebrews 9 that, the, that, they, that sin and its uh, rebellion against God required the shedding of blood. And as these Old Testament saints sacrificed these animals, they were to be aware, man, this is how much God hates sin. He's really serious about our sinful rebellion against Him. And so what really was required was not animal sacrifice, but the perfect sacrifice. And the only perfect sacrifice was God's Son, Jesus Christ, right? And I don't know if the second song this morning was fascinating to me. Upbeat. We're clapping. Man, I don't know about you. I was into it. And then I sang with you these words There is a fountain filled with blood while we're clapping, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. I'm like, are we disgusting or what? Like, what? 
right? Why would we sing that in celebration? Because we're singing about our forgiveness. As a believer, you understand, man, the high cost of my forgiveness was the blood of Jesus Christ freely offered, freely given to me because He loved me, because He reached down, He saved me out of my mess, and the only way to save me out of my mess was for a holy God to dump out His wrath and hatred of sin on something perfect, and He did that on Christ so that He could reach down and save me and reconcile me and call me a friend. And so now as a believer, man, I sing these songs. I take the Lord's Supper, and I take the bread, and I take the fruit of the vine, man, and I'm reminded, man, while forgiveness is free to me, it came at a high cost to God's Son, Jesus Christ. To be reconciled is to be moved from the category of enemy to the category of friend. And for this to happen, there had to be a forgiveness of sin against my rebellion against the holy God. And for that to happen, there had to be a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus' bodily suffering death was essential for you and me to be saved from our just penalty of sin. And that pauses and gives me a pause. And I have to ask the question, why would God do that? Why would God do that? Why not just punish me? Why not just give me what I justly deserve? God did that because it pleased him to do it. That's what the Bible says. He wanted to. He loved you. If you're here this morning, you're a believer. God, before the foundations of the world, set his affections on you, and he loved you, and he saved you. And you want to know why? Because he wanted to. How awesome is that? You didn't... It's not because you you were somehow lovely. It's because He loved you. And He displayed His marvelous grace and His mercy and His forgiveness in Christ. Romans 5, Paul says it this way, but God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He shed His blood for us. And so Christ bore the wrath of God and He reconciles us back to God the Father. And then... By this same gospel, by the same good news that we have relationship with, the God, with our Heavenly Father by grace through faith, He then presents us, verse 22 says, He presents us wholly before our Heavenly Father. So in other words, we now stand in the presence of God perfect because of the works of Christ. And so the works of Christ... His, his perfection, His living every day perfectly, get credited to us by grace through faith. This is the doctrine of justification. So, He's, he's, he's declared us holy, okay? And then when we become a Christian, we get a deposit of the third person of the Trinity in our hearts. We get the Holy Spirit living inside of us, who now is also making us holy, okay, which is the doctrine of sanctification. And then the process, we can be assured, will one day be complete when our faith becomes sight, and it's this thing called glorification, we will be holy. So we're declared holy, we're becoming holy, and we will be holy. Isn't that great news? By the way, if you're here this morning, you're a Christian. I mean, I think one of the most burdensome things as a Christian is that you still do wrestle with your sin, and you long to be free from that. I long to be free from that. And man, it just gives me such hope that Philippians 1, 6, the apostle Paul already says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great news? When our faith becomes sight, man, we'll be rescued from these decaying bodies. We'll be rescued from our sinful nature, and it will be vanquished, and it will be gone, and the wrestle will be over. 
I long for that day. I long for that day. And so he presents us holy. He presents us blameless, Paul says. This means we're without blemish. That because of Christ, we're, we're without the doctrine of justification. We've been declared righteous. We stand in the presence of God without sin and without blame. There's no one to blame you. Some of you are still living down to your old name. One of the great truths of the Scriptures is that as a Christian, you're adopted into the family of God. You're now heirs with the Son of God. All that God wants to bless His Son Jesus with, you get too, because you've been adopted. You have the last name, if you will, right? And so you're adopted, and some of you are still living down to your old name. Paul started this whole section with, such were some of you, right? How did he start the letter in verse 2? Chapter 1, verse 2. To the, what did he call these people? Saints, remember that? You're saints. Live up to your name. So if you're running through your life and you're like, you're dwelling on your past. Well, Pastor Sean, I, you know, man, I used to be sexual sin. I was a fornicator. I lo- you know, loved my sin. I, was, I lied a ton. I stole from people. I aborted a baby, right? S- living with my boyfriend or girlfriend. And we have to remember, that's who I used to be. I'm now a saint. I've been declared righteous, and I'm becoming righteous because the Holy Spirit lives in me. And then one day I'll be finished righteous, glorification. And so we live up to our name, and Paul says, that's who you used to be. You're now following Jesus, which means, again, it doesn't mean we don't sin, but it does mean we hate our sin and we love Jesus more and His holiness and His righteousness because we're blameless. And Jesus reconciles us to the Father. He's presenting us above reproach, Paul says. He says, the idea is nobody gets to bring a charge against you. No one gets to accuse you. You know, by the way, you know why? Revelation 12, the Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses Christians before in the presence of God. Hey, God, how come you're going to let that one in? That one's a liar. How are you going to let that one in? He's an adulterer. He's a fornicator. Why are you going to let that one in? That one's full of himself or herself. The reason, the reason is, is because as Christians, we've already self-accused. That's what confession means. You know what the word confession means? It means to agree with God. We've already said, yes, I'm all of those. And I'm in desperate need of saving. So Satan's not bringing anything we haven't already accused ourselves of. And so we agree with God, and we're self-accused. We've already levied the charge against ourselves, and we sing the song we sang at the end. Man, all I have is Christ. And I'm not bringing my own works. I'm not bringing my own deeds. I'm not bringing, you know, hoping my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I'm, I'm bringing the deeds of Christ that have been credited to me by grace through faith. And so then finally, Paul, so we're, we're, we were enemies. We were, I'm going to stay in the right spot. Okay, we were enemies with God, okay? And God, by His grace, sent His Son, poured out His blood so that we could be right. By His blood, we are reconciled. The payment of sin is paid for, and Christ reached down. He saves us from what we deserve, and He plops us in the camp of being a friend of God. He reconciled us, and He presents us before God holy and blameless and above reproach. Man, that's such great news. And then here's the so what. Paul says, here's the so what. Ready? Verse 23. 
This is the application of this process. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you, that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, I'm only going to focus on the front end of this verse. I wish I had time for the back end. Now, I wish I had time for the back end. All right, we'll do a little bit of the back end. Here we go. Ready? Here's the back end. Back end is Paul's so passionate. Here's this tiny, tiny little church, this little city. We, we know almost nothing about this little church called Colossians, okay? Yet Paul is passionately pouring himself out, and he's saying, listen, the gospel's been preached throughout the whole world. That's because Christ and the, uh, and the apostles saw themselves as leavening the whole lump, right? So as a little leaven leavens the whole lump, they see the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, not, not that there's a church planted in every single city, but that enough has been planted that the leaven is spreading and the kingdom of God is spreading like a little leaven, a little righteous leavens the whole. Go- now, listen, at the end of the day, the Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled. There will be as many believers as there are stars of the heaven. Isn't that great news? And so we get to pass this on. I had to... Um, had this amazing experience Friday night. Uh, it was, uh, I drove up to Baltimore and with my siblings, and it was my parents' um, 50th wedding anniversary. And, um, and they sat around the room, and my sister did a great job organizing it, and a bunch of their friends were there, and all the kids were there, and all the grandkids were there. And we all got to say some things about my dad and just to watch, and my parents, and, and watch, like, their friends testify to my dad's faithfulness in Christ. And and for each of us as kids to be able to say something about that. And, and my dad, like, he didn't have a Christian father. His, his mom got saved late in life, and so he was kind of trying to figure out this Christian dad thing as he went. And the way he figured it out was reading his Bible and being a part of church community, right? And other men speaking into his life and hearing some of those men share stories about how they shaped one another in the Lord. And, and, and to watch my dad grow, and I'm like, man, to see his little bit of effort of righteousness, not that it brought anything to the table, it's the grace of God. And he acknowledged that. It's like, it's all the grace of God. But to watch his effort, and God used that to leaven this huge lump, right, where there's 60, 70 people in this room, including, you know, three children and eight grandchildren all being brought up in the Lord. And I'm like, man, here was this man, and he just, he was just kind of doing the day-to-day obedience thing. And some days, I'm sure it was hard, some days it didn't make sense, but every once in a while you pause and you go, wow, God's really working this thing out. And I think that's what Paul's saying at the tail end of this, like this thing called the church and the gospel, it will be successful, and your obedience in the day-to-day gets to be a part of that. Isn't that great? Does that encourage you? Because we're going to talk, now I'm going to reverse the order of this verse, okay? And we're going to talk about the kind of the steadfastness of it all, because that's what Paul says. He says, our, how do we know that our faith is genuine? Well, it's stable, and it's steadfast, and it's not shifting around. I call this the day-to-day belief. You know, um, I think sometimes we, we lose... What I'm about to say, these books don't sell, right? The books that sell talk about how you being the center of this grand story, not Christ, and how if you'll just be faithful, man, there'll be this big miracle in your life. That's the grand story, right? Those are the books that sell. But I think the message of the gospel is much more ordinary, actually. I think God uses ordinary people doing ordinary things, holy and righteous, serving Him, that makes a bigger, long, longer-term impact than we see. And I think one day we're going to step back in eternity future and we'll look back and go, because so, what happens is with these books that sell and tell us, man, you know, go be the David and, you know, kill Goliath and all that. And then you, want, you look up one day and you're like, I didn't kill the Goliath. I just, like, changed diapers all week. 
I just did dishes all week. I just worked at this job that I hate all week. And, and there's nobody writing the book about, hey, there's worship in the ordinary, which then God uses to spread the fame of Christ from one generation to the next. That's the book that needs to be written. Because I think that's where most of us live, right? And so there's this deal. How, how do we know if we have genuine faith? It's stable. It's steadfast. It's not shifting. It's day to day. And by the way, the Scriptures tell us this, right? Like the, it's difficult to know counterfeit faith. It can be difficult to distinguish a true believer from an unbeliever, They're because not all who profess Christ are Christians. And Jesus told us that in Matthew 7, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, verse 22, Jesus said this, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, do many of my works in your name? Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, man, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And Jesus taught us, man, there's this difficulty, this challenge in the, in the, in the parable of the sower and the seeds in Matthew 13, right? A lot of y'all know this, but um, the sower and the seeds. In Bible times, when, you, when, I, when, uh, when I grew up, my mom had this huge garden, and, and it was huge. And we would, um, she grew up as a farm girl, so, um, and so we had a garden. And we, you know, when you planted your rows of corn, I mean, it was very specific. You'd take your seed, and every six or eight inches you put your seed in this row that had been, you know, kind of hoed. And, and, uh, and that's how we kind of did our gardening. But in Bible times, it's not how you garden. You prepared the field, and you had like a, gray, a, a sack or a, a bag of seed, and you would just take it, and you'd scatter it, right? And not all the seed would find the good soil. And so, and so Jesus kind of latches on that illustration. He says, man, like, our, like soil, our heart, there's four different kind of hearts that hear the Word of God in Matthew 13. He says there's the footpath. Some of the seed falls on the footpath. And by the way, in Matthew 13, later pulls the disciples aside and explains this. This is how we know what he's talking about. And he says the footpath is the people that hear the Word of God, and they don't understand it because their hearts are hard, just like this footpath. And the, and the evil one comes and snatches the way of the Word of God, so they just have no hope of even of hearing it because their hearts are hard and they love their sin. And then there's a second kind of heart where the seed is sown and it hits in the rocky ground and it springs up. And, and for a season, it looks just like real believers. It's hard to tell because it springs up and the other one's springing up. And it's hard to tell. But, but Jesus explains later that, that it has no re- root system and so the sun scorches it. Meaning that this person hears the word, they receive it, but the first trial or the first persecution or the first time that they have to repent of a habitual sin, man, they just end up loving their sin more than Christ, and so it gets scorched. And then the third soil is the is seed that's sown, and it and it lands among the thorn bushes. And maybe the thorn and the and the wheat grow up at the same time, but eventually the thorn bushes kind of crowd it out and choke out all the life of 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 this plant, of this seed. And Jesus says, this is a person who's the cares of the world. They love the world, right? And the riches of the world. It chokes out their love for Christ. And we see this, right? I see this a lot. Like you see someone, they're a Christian, and they're in a habitual sin. Hey, you're, you know, you say you're a Christian, but you're living with your boyfriend. You're living with your girlfriend. Oh, well, that's, I want to do that. I love my, you know, talking to this person, I love my sexual sin, the cares of the world. I want to do it my way. And I, we see this over and over. And so while they've made some kind of declaration that, yes, I'm a Christian, man, their, their fruits show otherwise. They love their sin. And so Jesus says there's a fourth kind of soil, and that's the one that hears the word. And this is what he says in Matthew 13, 8. He says, the other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain. 
some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. In other words, Jesus is saying that a true believer produces spiritual fruit. It doesn't, doesn't matter how much. There's just some form of fruit producing, 30, 60, 100. And I think you couple that with what Paul's saying here in Colossians 1.23, that, that in a genuine believer, there's a steadfastness. There's a Again, it's not that we're perfect. No person is. But, the, but in, when confronted with sin, there's a hatred of sin. And there's a love for the gospel. And there's a love for the work of Christ and the grace and mercy that God has displayed for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. A Christian loves Jesus for who he is and, and what he's done. A Christian says, you know what? G- so while we know Jesus is the creator and Jesus is, the, is sovereign over the church, he's the head of the body, but Jesus also, he's my personal savior, man. And I cling to him. And, and I love the last song we sang before we heard the word the, this morning because the older I get, the more I look around my life and I go, man, it's all about Christ. And he's all I have. Because, man, I offer my best, and, and especially as a parent, and you dads know this, like you do the best you can, and your, your parenting journey is mixed with some good things you do and some sinful things, and so, you, know, you don't do it perfectly, and yet God in His grace takes our offering and He uses it to do something great. And at the end of the day, I look and I go, man, all I have is Christ. And I love Christ, and I worship Christ. He's moved me from enemies and what I deserve to friends. And so a believer, a genuine believer, produces fruit. And Paul says it, 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 it bears itself out in, in perseverance and in steadfastness and in longevity. And by the way, here's, I think, real quick, and I'll, I'll finish this up here quick. I think there's three values to the, our faith being tested, right? Going through a couple things. First of all, when we go through things, trials produce hope. Romans 5, 3, and 4. Not only that, Paul says, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Man, so, there's some of you in, your, in this room this morning. I see, you, I see you right now, and I know what you've been through in your life. I know how difficult it is, and to see you here worshiping corporately just makes my heart come alive because I see how God has produced endurance, which has produced character, which produces hope. But you go, man, all I got is uh, the hope of eternity. Well, that's what going through some things does, right? So going through some things, a steadfastness produces hope. It also produces maturity. James tells us this, trials produce maturity. When James says, count it all joys, my br- count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, you grow in maturity. And you grow going, all I have is Christ. And difficulties and produce a steadfastness. The third thing is, is it produces leadership. I believe that, that trials and going through difficulties and steadfastness produces leadership. And we see this in, in, in 1 Timothy 3, where Paul's writing about how to select elders. And one of the things he says about an elder, he says, an elder must not be a recent convert. Right? Why? Because want, we want to make sure that it's not the seed that is sown among the rocks that springs up and looks like a believer. There needs to be some time to see if this person's a fruit producer, right? And, and so it produces leadership. And so the testing of our faith encourages our steadfastness, and it grows us more and more into our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I, uh, any Dallas Cowboy fans here? 
sorry. Okay, we'll pray for each of you. Um, I've used this story before, but I love this. Um, All-time NFL leading rusher. Anybody know who that is? Emmett Smith. Emmett Smith, all-time leading rusher. Ran for 18,000 yards in the NFL. Over 18 seasons. Did you know that to rush for 18,000 yards on an NFL field is to run for over 10 miles on an NFL field? But here's what's fascinating. Emmett Smith did that 4.2 yards a carry. So I want you to think about this. Emmett Smith ran 12 and a half feet every time he touched the football, and he got knocked off his feet by very large, angry men that wanted to keep him from going another foot, right? And he dusted himself off, and he got back up, he got the football, and he ran another 12 and a half feet. He got knocked down. And he dusted himself off, and he got back up, and he ran another 12 and a half feet, and he got knocked down. And he did this 4,370 times on his way to 10 miles. My back hurts thinking about two of those, okay? Another 4,300. I tell you that to say this. The Bible does not paint our spiritual journey as a sprint. It paints it as a marathon. And it lets us know we will be knocked down from time to time. Some of you came in here and discouraged. You're wondering, man, is my faith genuine? Is my faith real? I think one of the ways we know it's real is when we get in here and we worship corporately. Say, it doesn't always make sense to me, but I'm clinging to Christ because he's all I got. And we dust ourselves off and we go another 4.2 yards and we do it again. And we go another 4.2 yards and we say, all I got is Christ. This is not self-willed, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but this is endurance, which says, I'm believing in the person and work of Christ till the end of my days, trusting that his promises are true and that my life is going to make a bigger impact than I can possibly imagine because he takes our minuscule efforts and he multiplies it for the fame of the gospel. 4.2 yards at a time. I love Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. By the way, there's biblical, and this is Hebrews 11. It goes through all the biblical witnesses. This is the people in this room. Some of them are getting old, but they've been enduring and they've been following Christ. Look at some of the seniors in this room and go, thank you for your 4.2 yards at a time. They're a part of the cloud of witnesses. My parents, after 50 years of marriages, is a marriage, not marriages, one marriage, uh, 50 years of marriage is a part of the great cloud of witnesses. 4.2 yards at a time. And so he says, let us lay aside every weight, and especially sin. And some of you, your journey is being fraught with difficulty because you're still loving your sin. I want to encourage you. Man, hate your sin and love Christ, which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that has set it before us. How do we do that? We look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so we get knocked down, and we get up, and we keep our eyes focused on Christ. He's our champion. He's our personal Savior. He has reconciled us to the Father. And so we get up and we focus our thoughts and our minds on eternity, and we run the race tomorrow as an act of worship, and as an act of love, and as an offering of thanksgiving, adoration to Christ. Run with endurance, church. Run with endurance.
Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, 